0: Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast episode 28. If you are into cars and movies and TV and all of that good stuff, then you're in the right place. Especially if you like Days of Thunder. Martin Spain, my co-host. What's been going on in the world of fictional NASCAR?
1: (laughs) Uh, This popped up on my Twitter feed. It's an article on ESPN.com titled Why Days of Thunder is a Cult Classic. Uh, and it's a fantastic look into the making of the movie, told by the people that were there, the people that were involved. And I, I read the whole thing, loving it, wanting to watch Days of Thunder again and wishing that this had been available when I did my review in whichever episode it was, Way back when, Chris, you'll have to look at the uh, the list and tell us when we did Days of Thunder. But this has all manner of fantastic behind the scenes stories that I could have put in my review. Um, it's a fantastic article. If you've seen Days of Thunder and think it's rubbish, go and read this anyway. It might make you a little misty eyed. If you're like me and you kind of think it's secretly cool again now, um, read it because you'll just get an itch to watch the movie again. I really want to watch the movie again especially after reading this. Um, Chris also found a thread from NASCARman underscore RR on Twitter that has a bunch of video clips from the making of, including crews attending races and a bunch of other interesting facts there. But it's, it's a really fun article about the making of a a movie that was titled Top Car. And apparently the crew even had hats that said Top Car because they were just after that Top Gun dollar. They didn't quite make it, but I think this has aged better than most. And the, the article does make an interesting point that a whole bunch of fans and NASCAR insiders, drivers, team bosses and the like, who were very sniffy about some of the movie's inaccuracies during filming have all gone on and retired now. They've all gone away, and in their place is a (laughs) bunch of people who watched this when they were kids and impressionable teenagers, and they love it. And, yeah, they know it's cheesy and some of it's wrong. There's a great bit about when they're watching the premiere and it goes from this fantastic racing footage to rickety old barn and all the NASCAR people who had taken great care and attention to show them their spotless gleaming modern shops where the cars are worked on all groaned because there's this knackered old barn (laughs) with a hillbilly in, and they just thought oh here we go they're going to portray us as moonshine runners and you know old farmers with a bit of straw sticking out the side of their mouth and it does look like a very nice barn and I think that's what drew Tony Scott to it but I found that bit very amusing so please go and read it, ESPN.com we'll put the link in the show notes why Days of Thunder is a cult classic and it is I won't brook any arguments on this
0: <laughs> I was quite shocked actually the reason that these are coming out now is because it's the anniversary of the US release of Days of Thunder which was 30 years ago Jeez, which is, that makes me feel yeah. old <laughs> I remember it coming out, and I've, like I say, I've never seen it, but I remember. The black car, the mellow yellow. I, not even knowing what mellow yellow was. I'm still
1: not quite sure. I think it's some kind of Coca-Cola lemonade thing. What I did do after reading this article was see if I could find a mellow yellow T-shirt or some kind of slightly <laughs> subtle Days of Thunder merch. And there are such things, but are they on, uh, they're on Amazon.com and they won't ship to the UK. So uh, if Boom. if we have any US listeners feeling particularly generous, then send me a medium mellow yellow T-shirt. <laughs>
0: we've also had recently a almost drive to survive esque documentary from the formula e category called and we go green which is an interesting double entendre when you think about it I saw this a few weeks ago when it was an exclusive on channel 4 in the UK but I found out yesterday it's actually turned up on YouTube the whole documentary. And I've got to say, I was pleasantly surprised. I was not quite sure what it was going to be like going in. There's been documentaries in the past, particularly about the first race in, I want to say, Dubai, um, where they look at how the track's built from nothing and all that sort of thing. But what it actually is, rather than being just about the racing or just about the environmental side or just about any one particular aspect... It's actually quite a good potted introduction to Formula E, to its history, and it focuses particularly on the rivalry between John Eric Verne and Sam Bird.
1: With a little bit of Andre Lotterer and Lucas Degrassi in the mix as well. Oh, and just on the side being kind of rubbish, Nelson Piquet Jr.
0: Well, yes, that is kind of his M.O. And that's the last thing we'll mention about him because, yeah, he is quite secondary Isn't there a thing at the end where it says something like Nelson Piquet Jr. left the series in 2017 and is now racing tractors in Brazil or something? Yeah, pretty much.
1: Um, It does the thing, and I know we've skipped right to the very end, but it does the thing where after it's told the story of the season, it then updates you on what happened next effectively in that kind of classic documentary show a still image or show a, a bit of footage and stick some text over the top. And um, yes, it says something along the lines of Nelson Piquet Jr. left his team halfway through the following season and is now racing stock cars in Brazil. Which is a fairly damning bit of text because, yeah, they're not very kind to him. Which I thought was odd because he's very articulate when he's talking Mm. about the series and when he's talking about racing drivers in general. And even when he's talking about his dad, who does not sound like a particularly nice gentleman, he's a little off when he's talking about himself or his career, but perhaps that's just because it's him doing the talking. I watched this last night and uh, I wasn't feeling very well. Uh, We were due to record last night and I texted Chris at the last moment and said, dude, I need to push it out by a day and I need something to watch to take my mind off the fact that I feel really (laughs) ill. And so he sent me the link to this documentary. And now I will hold my hand up right now and say that I... I'm on the record on Twitter and in many conversations with motor racing friends as viewing Formula E as milk float racing in a dockside car park. (laughs) This documentary does not change that impression when I talk about the racing. The problem I have with Formula E is all the tracks look the same. There is no Mm -hmm. individual unique feature that makes you go, yes, in the way that you've got the the S's at Suzuka or you've got Cop's Corner at Silverstone or you've got Eau Rouge and Radion in Spa or any of the famous corners there are at famous racetracks tracks the world over. Formula E has none of that because these are temporary tracks set up in car parks and Docklands and sometimes in streets in big cities because, you know, it's supposedly... Um, green racing and therefore they can go places because they don't make any noise uh, that they couldn't stage an F1 race and that's fine but there's no appeal at seeing these cars tackle identical circuits the appeal has to come from the racing and the drivers and I think that's where this documentary scores really big it's kind of a for me it felt like kind of a two-hander between the boss of Formula E, Alexander Agag, basically giving us the hard sell on Formula E. Some of it via a medium of having Leonardo DiCaprio tagging along and being given the hard sell on Formula E, which is kind of fun because he's been to a, a race apparently every single season and he's clearly interested enough to keep coming back.
0: He's an investor in one of the teams. Is he really? you think he's got some money in Dragon? If I'm right, okay. No, uh, Venturi.
1: Oh, I don't know. Yeah,
0: teams. um,
1: that's interesting. But that's felt very much like the sales pitch for Formula E. And the other problem I have with Formula E is that I fundamentally disagree with Agag's the Gags theory that combustion engines are going to go away and that battery tech and electric cars are the future, because I feel they're a dead end. And everyone is ignoring the fact that batteries are full of horrible rare earth minerals that are mined in horrible conditions. And I get that they're trying to be more ecological. They are sourcing their own power from some strange combination of seaweed and milkshake. (laughs) I can't remember the actual thing, but it's some kind of thing. And they run their generators that are emissions free and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's great. You have this. But the problem I have is that I disagree with your fundamental philosophy that says that battery EVs are the future. I don't think they are. I think they are a stopgap at best and a dead end at worst. However... The stuff that really works in this documentary is the driver stuff, the personality stuff, Mm. and that works gangbusters. I'd go so far as to say this works better in some respects than Drive to Survive because it concentrates on the drivers more and it interviews them in their own spaces. It doesn't stick them on a chair in front of a light in a talking head studio and then fire things at them that way. They've got a little bit more access, I think, and they are empowered to ask difficult questions, emotional questions. Mm. So we get to look into season four and we follow Jean-Eric Verne. We follow Lucas de Grassi, Sam Bird, to a lesser extent Andre Lotterer, who is Jean-Eric Verne's teammate for the first time that year, and then Nelson Piquet Jr. sort of on the side. And have you
0: watched the documentary? How much of a laugh do you think Andre Lotterer would would be on a night out?
1: Quite a lot, I think. I was surprised to see how much he kind of dicked about and how much he was a little bit dirty in his racing. Um, They don't show loads and loads of racing and they don't try and make you believe it's the most exciting thing in the world by dubbing over loads of noise like Drive to Survive does because they've got a fundamental problem that it's slow. And it doesn't sound particularly attractive. So there's a lot of long lens watching the cars come down a straight so that you can see them locking their wheels because it's really easy to lock the wheels on these cars. Uh, There's moments Mm. where they go for an overtake and all four wheels are locked, which is something you don't see in F1 very much unless Pastor Maldonado is behind you. Um, (laughs) But I did really enjoy the deep dive into these characters, specifically Jean-Eric Verne, who was ignominiously dropped by Red Bull from their Formula One programme for reasons unknown. They said they didn't have it, but he since went to Formula E and he kind of is described as having a big dark cloud over him and being very moody and he was teammates with Sam Bird and they barely spoke and he was very dark and down. And the, the documentary takes a little time to dig into why and when it gets to it, they stick with it on, on a long shot and credit to the interviewer for partly being ignorant of racing and not knowing the answer to the question he's asking and not knowing how painful it is but for the cameraman and for the for the the, the editors to stick with it as they ask about the Japanese Grand Prix in 2014 where Jules Bianchi was killed mm. and it affected jean Verne very deeply because he was right behind him on the track he saw it happen he damn well nearly did the same thing and that's hugely powerful because that's the thing that explains the state that Jean-Éric Verne, between that and being dropped by Red Bull, that's the thing that explains the state that Formula E has him when he starts racing and how he's been for the last few years. That I found really fascinating because it's not often that you are allowed the kind of deep dive into a driver's psyche. Drive to Survive hasn't really done it. Um It would have a ball if it did it with someone like Lewis Hamilton, if he'd ever allow that degree of access and being that (laughs) honest. But I don't think they ever will. Plus, you know, Hamilton's memory seems to be very, very limited. He claims he can't remember anything from last week. So trying to ask him about (laughs) a few years ago wouldn't be interesting at all. Um, I'm a Sam Bird fan. I'll hold my hand up now and say... I've been a fan of his since his junior formula days, wishing for him to get into F1, which he didn't. Um, I've supported him through his endurance racing in the WEC. And it hurts to see him in a car that's not as good as the front runners with. There's a moment where you're on board with him and he's being overtaken seemingly easily. And he's on the radio saying, we're just not efficient enough. And, that's not appealing to me as a motor racing fan to hear someone shout down the radio we're not efficient enough i get that a gag wants to promote sustainable motorsport and ev technology but that does not inspire fans of motorsport the racing is often quite good i felt like watching it going this got to be the almost the most full contact series apart from btcc in places (laughs) they seem very keen to bounce off of one another but there's a whole bunch of things. There's a great quote from uh, Sam Bird on his chances of, of, you know, when when he grew up, he wanted to be Formula One world champion, and you know, he he described it as a as a pyramid. As you go up, there's fewer spots and fewer spots. And he says something along the lines of, uh, "I've got as much chance of going to the moon on a banana as I have of getting back into F1," <laughs> which is about the most brilliant phrase. <laughs> he's not interviewed as much. He's he's in with a shout at the championship, but it's an outside shout and he doesn't have the car for it. And mm. like, I mean, James Allen says earlier on, he he was brilliant in the early categories of single seaters and he could have got to F1 if he'd had the luck. And he doesn't seem to get the, he doesn't seem to be in a position to benefit from that as much as the other guys. I really enjoyed seeing him. There's stuff I didn't like. I didn't like that they showed the clip of Jules Bianchi crashing. It's amateur camera oh, God, footage yes. that was horrible. Just that was just so unnecessary. I did not want to see that. Oh I, yeah, I, I, there was another documentary which dropped in something similar, or just dropped in crash footage that didn't need to be there. And mm. this did not need to be. That you could see the fact that Jev could barely speak about it. He had to. He, they're trying to ask him about it. We should. Uh, we should mention that this is made by the actor fisher stevens who you will know from short circuit short circuit two and <laughs> if you are of a certain age as chris and i are hackers he for some reason is the interviewer here and he obviously does not know a great deal about formula one and motor racing in general and he's asking about a very close friend and he's asking what happened at the race and you know jeff is, he says he tries and then he has to get up and walk away, and then he comes back with a pair of sunglasses on and, and tries to answer. But even then, you don't get much out of him. It's it's clear that that's been put away in a box and he doesn't want to reopen it. That was one of the most powerful bits of the documentary for me, seeing that, seeing what drives a sports person.
0: Weirdly, actually, looking at Fisher Stevens' IMDb page, one thing that jumps out at me was a um, John Bon Jovi multi-part documentary series he did. <laughs> really? But no, it, it's, it's a very well-made documentary. I think it's definitely for people that have no way into Formula E. And I think that the, the fact that what you said about the efficiency side of it, there is a limited scope, I think, with Formula E because it is largely a spec series. What they have done, quite cleverly, is they've kept some things free. So the bits that are directly related to road cars... Like software mapping, like inverters, motors, things like that. Um, for the for the Tamir people, basically the speed controller and how many winds the motor's got. Anyway. Um <laughs> can you imagine it like first season formula e instead of swapping cars they should have turned the cars over taken a panel out pulled out a nicad pack put another one in turned it back i know they show
1: you the actual battery pack and it's a structural part of the car but i'd far prefer it if it was a kind of four big cells soldered together wrapped in plastic (laughs) and tape matched yeah matched pack yeah i it's i think this is worth seeing I think this is Mm. worth watching, even if you're not a Formula E fan. And I've given Formula E a few tries. Uh, They had a Gen 2 car come in last year and I watched some of the races there. The problem I have is still the circuits. The cars are kind Mm. of fast enough now and the racing is good. The drivers are all very talented. There's a bunch of things that go unsaid in this. There's a lot of XF1 drivers in here and quite a few drivers who split their time between Formula E and the World Endurance Championship. And... A gag makes a big point of how they've got loads of manufacturers coming in, but neglects to say, because it's cheap. This costs something like $20 million for a season of racing. It's so cheap they can write it off as one day's marketing budget. (laughs) And that's why they're here. They're not really here because they 100% believe that battery tech is the future. They're here because they need to do it. They need to be seen to be doing it. I guarantee if you said to Porsche, you can do anything other than internal combustion with petrol, they would go looking at hydrogen or biofuels. They wouldn't go looking at battery tech because the gains in battery tech just take so long and the weight penalty is so huge and the heat problem is so difficult. I get there is some trickle down into, you know, into cars and so on, but it's so small and it's in cars that weigh <laughs> over two tonnes and cost £150,000. I mean, I'm on a soapbox and I'll climb down now. Anyway. Honestly, if you are interested in motor racing, this is worth watching. It's free. It's on YouTube. Mm. Uh, it's, what, an hour and a half? It's quite long. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a full-length documentary. It's worth watching, specifically and especially for the driver relations and the insights you get into working in a top-tier motorsport series and and mm. how drivers... have to behave how they are mentally prepared that stuff is fascinating and it's a deeper dive than most documentaries will go into Mm. including drive to survive
0: and i think if if you are watching it with somebody who has has no interest or no way into motorsport but it likes the people side of it this is absolutely a great way in for them
1: It did make me think that now we've got Formula E's got its kind of documentary moment. The WEX had quite a few good documentaries about it, plus Le Mans. F2. F2's had a great documentary. Well, a a middling documentary series with one great great episode in it. Mm. Um, Now we've got this for Formula E. Where's rallying? Because I would love a documentary about rallying. It is so photogenic. The drivers are Mm. more risk than in any other series. The cars are bonkers there was a clip that went did the rounds on twitter last week i think where i think it's one of the toyota's testing and it flies over a crest and then proceeds to defy the laws of gravity and land without any kind of body movement whatsoever and continue on it's one of these ones where you see the difference in suspension technology and damper technology between rally cars like five years ago now it's
0: spooky i'm gonna sound really dumb here <laughs> I thought that was like a video game clip. No, that was Toyota testing. I thought when somebody said it's unbelievable, it's like, it's literally unbelievable because it, it, wow. It is unbelievable,
1: but it's real. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I I would love to see a documentary about the World Rally Championship along these lines where they do dig in a bit as to the driver personalities, the teams, why Mm. they do it, why rallying is, is just a bit about that for a modern audience to bring more people in because rallying while still popular is nowhere near as big as it once was and Mm. i feel like it could be and it should be because the cars are as crazy as they've been for a long time and the drivers are bonkers we'll get to that when we get to our youtube pics later on but where's rallying's drive to survive i want to see that
0: Let's leave the World of Formula E behind and move on to the main theme for this episode, which is I've called it Commodian Classics, and I should explain that. Um, in an earlier episode, we highlighted a list that Mark Kermo, the noted film critic and all-round movie god, had created. And we kind of mucked up a bit of it. Uh, In how we described it, he listened, he told us, and we apologised profusely. And so, somewhat in his honour, and partly because it's a cracking list, we will put it in the show notes, Marty and I picked a film each from that list, and mine is American Graffiti, which is a film that I've known about for God knows how many years and never actually seen. It's... So, just to give a bit of background, because it's kind of an interesting tale of its gestation, George Lucas did a sci-fi film called THX 113, um, which is also the genesis of where THX, the surround sound standard, comes from. It didn't do terribly well, so people told him, how about, instead of making your silly space movies, try doing something else? (laughs) And I'd love to say that was a joke, but that seems to be actually just what happened. So he had this idea, Francis Ford Coppola, he was encouraging him and helping him and help raise a bit of the budget. And what he did was he took the idea of the kind of the high school prom and came up with this movie where the tagline is, what were you doing in the summer of 1962? I will say up front, this is probably one of the most car movies we have probably ever covered as a feature film on this podcast for reasons that shall become apparent. The whole film is One Night in 1962. And you are introduced to these characters. So there's Ron Howard's character and his girlfriend. There's the older kid who still hangs out with the younger kids and never kind of moved on with his life. There's the younger nerd. There's the kind of the nice boy who's hanging around and drives a 2CV rather brilliantly. And it follows them all through one night. And they all meet up at this drive-in diner, this glorious sort of 1950s concoction. And Ron Howard's character drives this large sedan with fins down the side. Like I say, one of the characters has a 2CV. There's a 32 Ford, he says, reaching for his notes. Um, Yeah, don't ask me. I've got no idea. So, in the words of one article I found on this, who could forget the yellow 32 Ford Coupe, white 58 Chevrolet Impala, black 55 Chevy two-door sedan, white 56 Thunderbird and Candy Apple Red 51 Mercury Coupe. Clearly we are the ones who could forget that. Is the yellow one the one that Harrison Ford is in? No. There's a black one which is similar to that. No, the yellow one is driven by another one of the main characters but that is absolutely one of the iconic you know for those who haven't who haven't seen it how do you describe it it's like the kind of the the classic hot rod ford coupe no boot lid uh no bonnet lid rather exposed engine wheels it looks slightly kind of adams family anyway so they basically they all meet up in this at this um drive-in diner And it's kind of that phase where the 60s hasn't yet hit rural America. The 50s are still very much the kind of what's going on. And they all go off and they all sort of have their own storylines. They all have their own own adventures. They meet people. Um, There's a relationship that splits up and gets back together. They are, some of them are out hunting girls. They're out doing all of these stories which don't actually kind of intersect for the most part, but the whole time they are driving. They are driving somewhere. They are cruising. They are trying to chat up girls out the window in another moving car. They're racing from lights. They're driving out to make out point. The whole thing is soundtracked. They're listening to the radio the whole time, and the soundtrack is amazing, but it is also nonstop. It's like those bits in Good Morning Vietnam, when Robin Williams is doing the DJ bit and they play these fantastic pieces of music, except it's that all the way through. It very rarely ever stops. And this is the whole thing. It's people in cars listening to music, doing stuff. And they all have their story arcs. They all have their character moments where they learn something, they prove something, they do something, they make a gesture or they they are Concede something or are contrite about something, and I say I wasn't entirely sure what to expect going in because I saw the words "coming of age film," which to me makes me think of American Pie or The Goonies or some sort of thing where a group of boys get together and they go off and do a quest and they come back at the end and they've discovered the meaning of life or whatever it might be. Whereas with this you're dealing with a lot more smaller stories, a lot more smaller character arcs, but all of them are resolved by the end. They don't intertwine. They're not like a Guy Ritchie film where they're kind of crossing in and out of each other's stories. Um, It's really, really well shot. There's some of the stuff that early on is quite... It almost looks quite contemporary in the way that it's quite handheld, it's quite energetic. The whole thing was done on a really, really low budget... And Francis Ford Coppola had to get like another 150 grand out of the studio by going, hi, I'm Francis Ford Coppola. Give George Lucas more money.
1: Which is ridiculous when you think about it. George Lucas is begging to to the studio for more money to make this thing. But of course, this is pre-Star Wars.
0: Oh, it's... I mean, this was 73, I think it came out. THX1138 was 1971. So he was kind of the guy who was a bit kind of down on his, on his heels really, and was trying to sort of find a, a more commercial thing than THX 1138. Trying to find a career really, you know, this was him trying to make it as a filmmaker. And don't forget, he's one of that group who were kind of, who was it like Scorsese and Coppola and. Spielberg. Lucas and Spielberg. So, you know, it was really, it was really kind of a big deal. And it, It's so out of character for George Lucas to do this kind of small, really kind of small-town America story. It's it's small characters going through small stories, but doing so in a really, really nice way. I think, looking at the credits, he wrote it along with two other people, and I think I texted you while I was watching it and said, the dialogue for this is, is really good. The women in it, and there aren't that many, but they are really well-written. The actress who's playing Ron Howard's girlfriend really has this sense of agency about her. She really has this sense of, um, you know, she's standing up for herself. It's not a male fantasy character. You know, there is kind of actual jeopardy in, um, in the way that their relationship kind of plays out. Would I say it's a classic? I don't think it is. I think it's kind of, it's almost the opposite of when you were talking about Jewel, I think in the last episode, which was a TV movie that became a cinematic release. Whereas with this, it was supposed to be a movie. The studio tried to get it cut down to actually become a TV movie rather than a cinematic release. But again, you know, you kind of had a couple of behind him kind of go, no, 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 it's good. Trust me on this. Yeah. So Universal Pictures gave George Lucas a budget of $600,000 which is about three and a half million in today's money. And after after Coppola got involved, they gave him another 175,000 and kind of went like, there's your lot. But yeah, it's one of those films that I think, I think it probably gets well regarded because I think it is a film that you can enjoy as a film. It's not necessarily the most engrossing story. I think there are bits in it that are interesting. I think the way that, they structure the film is is interesting. The way that they kind of marry all these stories together is is interesting. I think it, it's a it's a like I say a hugely Kari film. If you have any nostalgia for the late fifties early sixties, this will be so far in your wheelhouse you will love it because it really just just soak up all of the atmosphere. Like I say, the music, the clothes the way that people are behaving, the young people, the older people, even, um, there's a slight incongruity at first, where, which is that it's set in a, around a diner. It stars Ron Howard, and the font that they open the film with in the title credits is the, pretty much the same one they use on the opening credits for Happy Days. And Ron Howard is not playing Richie Cunningham in this. He It's very much of the spectrum, which is... I actually kind of looked at this and went, did George Lucas watch Happy Days and then sort of think, actually, you know, because they came out, American Graffiti and the first episode or the pilot episode of Happy Days came out within like six months of each other. And apparently Ron Howard did a pilot for Happy Days in 1971. George Lucas saw that and thought, oh, he'd be good in a movie. So it, it is slightly kind of tangential to the Happy Days universe. There's, but some, not a- there's some cross-pollination there. Yeah, but... It, there isn't but there kind of is and you but go into it thinking it's not happy days
1: i have never seen this like you i have never got around to watching it and all i know is that this was an enormous success at the box office mm. like a really for the times a massive hit mm. it was made on a shoestring relatively speaking and grossed enough that George Lucas got the clout at the studio to be able to go and make Star Wars. So it's kind of doubly important there to movies in general. What In terms of the cars, is there anything in terms of driving? Because you've gone over the cars and we've gone, yes, there are some. Uh, Being Brits, we have no (laughs) idea what they are or why they're special. If they were talking about Mark I Escorts or something, we might do better. Um, Is it just drag racing lights to lights? like very old school
0: Fast and Furious style um, the only bit of action if you like in terms of the cars is drag racing um, they don't have any sort of long curving sequences because it didn't have the money <laughs> um, also some of it is quite obviously shot on like the kind of universal backlot th- but the thing is that it's not about cars or driving in the sense of being an enthusiastic wheelman and you know Going off and doing all this stuff. Worrying about tread shuffles exactly. and <laughs> exactly. other things. Um, it's all about being young, having a car, going out cruising, being seen, chatting to girls, picking girls up. Harrison Ford's character, who turns up, Harrison Ford is incredibly young in this. I, I've never thought of him as a particularly young actor, but he is in this. And um, he, him and, um, the other character, John, in the yellow 32 Ford, they do have this kind of build-up to a sort of climactic drag race thing. And there's some other stuff going on as well. But it, it it's not about that. It's, it really is about just being in the cars, being seen in the cars. The the nerd character borrows um, Ron Howard's character's car and he's suddenly he says like, hey, look, I'm in this big car and aren't I cool? And yes, of course it's mine. And then learns a lesson from that. So it's it is absolutely about the culture. It's about being young, about having a car, having other people who are young and in cars around you. I would say it is definitely worth a watch. It, I, I see why it has the place that it has, even if you exclude the box office results. Like I say, the soundtrack is great what they did with the money that they had is really impressive. It's oddly darker than a lot of films. And I don't mean in terms of story like The Dark Knight or Christopher Nolan. I mean, literally, it's kind of filmed in the middle of the night and a lot of the times all you can see are the headlights. But, I mean, the other thing as well is like the cast, you know, Richard Dreyfus was in it, Ron Howard, um, young Harrison Ford. There's all sorts of people who, if you go through the IMDb page, you kind of go, God, they've been in a lot of stuff. And the acting in it is really really solid given that there seems to have been a young director on his back foot young actors who would go on to become megastars in some cases I think it's quite a a difficult watch in some cases because not in the sense that it is it is problematic in terms of its content but it drops you right into the story there's no sense of this being over months. There's no long, drawn-out character introductions. You don't know what the characters' motivations are. You don't know who they are in some cases. So you you literally join the characters one night, you leave them the following morning.
1: I quite like that, though. Mm. Dazed and Confused does the same trick and may well have been influenced by this, where it's just one night. It's... An interesting approach, and I do quite like the idea of just dropping you in and going, here are these people, you'll get to know them as you go on, you'll pick up who they are
0: from what they do. Mm. And I think on that basis, it's definitely worth a watch. See how you feel about it, see what you think, let us know. Good. I
1: do kind of want to go and watch it now. This sounds to me like this could be quite a good summer summer evening Mm. movie when it's a little cooler and you fancy just sitting and chilling and watching something fun that will remind you of being half the age you are now. (laughs) So my movie from Dr. Commode's list is Bullet, which is a movie that I think many people have been expecting us to review on this podcast for the very famous car chase in the middle, and we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to dig into this in enormous detail because I think this movie is so well known and i would do such a poor job <laughs> of reviewing it as a film per se i will give you a, a, a very short précis of the movie it stars steve mcqueen as detective lieutenant frank bullet I thought, I which sounds like Clinton. a made-up name <laughs> yes um Which sounds like a made up name. Uh, It was probably Steve McQueen going, how can I sound even cooler than I already am? Let's now call myself Bullet. Um, It also unfortunately reminded me of the episode of Red Dwarf where Crichton uh, wakes up and is Detective Jake Bullet. But that is particularly parochial for those of you who don't live in the UK and are not of a certain age that watched Red Dwarf on the television. So Frank Bullitt is assigned to protect a key witness in a mafia trial. Unfortunately, it goes horribly wrong. One of his friends ends up being gunned down and the witness is left at death's door. So Bullitt did not do a great job there. (laughs) Uh, He then decides to go and do some investigating of his own, which brings him into conflict with Walter Chalmers, who is a corrupt and ambitious politician and the person who set him the task of protecting this witness in the first place. I won't go into any more than that because the plot weaves and turns and... It's quite hard to follow because this is of a time when movies did not spell everything out for you. What you got were dimly lit scenes with people in trench coats mumbling a lot. (laughs) And you had to just kind of pick up what was going on. And I'm being slightly facetious there. Uh, I don't appreciate movies that spoon feed everything, but... I don't think a movie like this would be made now. I think there would be far too many studio notes going, we haven't got the faintest clue what's going on and (laughs) tell him to stop mumbling. McQueen reportedly excised the number of words in the script to the absolute minimum because they know that he, he kind of instinctively understood that he could do more with his presence and a look than lots of talky talky and that may have contributed to the sort of lack of dialogue far more in in actions rather than words it 's got a fantastically jazzy and slightly awkward score from uh, Lelo Schifrin. who goes from being brilliant and and suspenseful and dynamic into some appalling lounge jazz. <laughs> Yeah, there's a scene with them in a bar or restaurant or something that I was just cringing, thinking, please get this over with. This is so horrible. I can't concentrate on the movie because I hate the music so much. But there's some really interesting stuff there. Um, lots of the action scenes are not scored, which I found was a kind of choice that, again, wouldn't happen now unless you're specifically trying to ape this muscular late 60s, early 70s style. This movie was directed by Peter Yates, who's an English director who'd come across, and he's looking at San Francisco with kind of fresh eyes. And San Francisco is as much a character as anybody else mm. in this movie. It's it's full of those vertiginous hilly drops. Even before you get to the car chase, you just you look around and think you can't mistake this for anywhere else, and it, it's wonderful in that way and it reminds me of nothing more than the way Michael Mann shot the movie Heat in and around LA to try and make the city a character and this feels exactly the same like i say even before you get to the car chase i know you want me to talk about the car chase yes. so let's
0: let's let's jump into that is it in a Ford Puma
1: It is not in a Ford Puma, although I was struck with the urge to go back and watch that (laughs) advert. Now, again, if you are of a certain age, you will remember the Ford Puma, the original one, not the rubbish new one. Sorry, Jay. (laughs) Having an advert that had Steve McQueen controversially kind of grafted onto the driver of the new Ford Puma. Uh, And did it end with him pulling into the garage and seeing the Mustang alongside it? That was it, wasn't it? So the car chase. Steve McQueen famously did some of his driving. Not all of it. The chase takes a long time. To, if you're going into this movie expecting the car chase to start out baby driver style, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it takes over an hour before you get this, and there's 10 minutes of it, no music again, which is a really uh, the right choice. It's mm. all about the growling engine noises, squealing tyres, many hubcaps falling off in inconsistent <laughs>
0: manners. Also, did I notice at some points there are there are times when the two of them are just driving down a road and for no reason there will suddenly be gear changes
1: yes there's a lot of that i mean given the time they were working with and the tools they had yes they did yes, a remarkable course. job um you watch it and think Jesus, how did the cars stand up to this? As they're flying over those famous San Francisco hills and smashing down, all of the cars have got reinforced suspension. Engines left largely alone, but they reinforce suspension and chassis to cope with the,
0: <laughs> to cope with it. Um, There's an onboard shot. I think it's with from Steve McQueen's car, where he basically hits each one a bit faster. And I'm sure just before they cut away, he's basically bouncing out the seat as he. Lands. Yes,
1: I notice that you can see seatbelt technology of the time. There's even a shot of the bad guy just before he takes off for the chase, clipping his only seatbelt, which is a lap belt—the kind of thing that you think, "Yeah, that's not going to help." It's the sort of thing you put on when you go on the dodgems at the fun fair. <laughs> this is not going to help in a whacking great Dodge Charger. So this chase is between a black uh, 370 horsepower 440 Magnum V8-powered Dodge Charger. Yes, I had to look that up. No, I don't know it off the top of my head. And the famous Ford Mustang GT Fastback, which is running a 390 cubic inch Ford V8.
0: Ooh. Also, I had to look that up here. Um, which is approximately 44 hectares in uh, in English measurements. I don't know. They
1: sound amazing. Mm. And... Lots of the chase is done in big, long, sweeping takes. And you can see this is the archetype for all muscular, gritty 70s car chases. There's no French connection without this this car chase. There's there's probably an awful lot of car chases following in the decades to come that would not exist without this car chase or would be significantly different. Apparently, during the chase, the director had said, you know, we're not going to go for any, more, any faster than 80 miles an hour. But when they ended <laughs> up filming, they were doing over 110. Wow. Some of the reviews of the time were a bit breathless and going, they're doing 150 miles an hour, which would be a struggle in cars that probably can't (laughs) get there on a straight, flat, level piece of road. But still, I watched this and... For the first half of the chase, I was struck by how much understeer there was in these cars. Oh, the Charger particularly—they go flying around these corners, and you think, "Oh, it's a big muscular V-eight rear-wheel drive; they'll just be on the lock stops every time." They're not. They're just—they're actually trying to carry speed. They're trying. There's a much more greater sense of speed in this, and as a result, there is that horrible squealing understeer sound from both cars. Um, and there's a moment where mcqueen's car the mustang steps on it coming away from a junction and just leaves one black line all the way down the road and you think oh you need a diff in that car so badly
0: (laughs) I spotted that, yeah.
1: But that's that's very nerdy. Famously, there are moments where the cars overtake the same st- the, the same sort of staged car multiple times over. And this is no more obvious than when there's a sequence in the middle of the chase where both of them overtake the same dark green Volkswagen Beetle about 5,000 times. <laughs> for a chase that's pretty well cut together for the time and the technology available... That's a glaring error, Ooh. but there are moments earlier on in the movie, even before the chase, where you can see that McQueen's Mustang is smashed to bits uh, because they only had two cars and they'd obviously filmed some of this already, so there's some continuity errors in the way the cars <laughs> look. There's a whole bunch of hubcaps that kind of fly off from different angles.
0: I have to say, there's, there's there's one stunt with a stuntman who falls off a motorbike in front of the two cars.
1: Yes, that is a Bud Edkin. Bud Eakins. Sorry, I'm going to get his name wrong. Who is the guy that did the chase, uh, the guy that did the stunt in The Great Escape, where McQueen's uh. character jumps over the barbed wire fence. So he here does a like a low-sider crash, and I was watching it thinking that is absolutely a stuntman deliberately laying the bike mm. down. There's no attempt to it look anything other than controlled. It looks cool, and it serves the story really well, the sort of the story of the car chase, where him doing that delays McQueen's uh, Mustang and... Um, I should call him Bullet, but it just sounds so stupid. I'm just <laughs> going to call him McQueen.
0: <laughs> but but when you when you see the footage of this stuntman lying prone in the road, and there's these two cars going at towards him at speed.
1: <sighs> yes, this is filmed it of a different time. Um, McQueen did a lot of the driving in the close-up scenes and then three other drivers, the stunt coordinator, Carrie Loftin, Bud Eakins and McQueen's usual stunt driver, Lauren James drove for a lot of the high-speed parts of the chase and did the more dangerous stunts. Mm. The Charger with the bad guys in it is driven by veteran stunt driver, Bill Hickman. I think, I mean, the, largely, everything seems like it was done for real. There are mm. moments where you feel like they're just on the edge of having an accident particularly the charger smacks into a guardrail at one point right by the camera and it just feels like everything is right on the (laughs) limit of being out of control and that's why it works it still now holds up it jumps off of screen at you unfortunately for a car people it's the highlight of the movie and then the movie takes a big downturn into the shitter afterwards (laughs) um as it goes back into its kind of deep plotty Bad guy in my fear stuff. And then for reasons I wasn't quite able to fathom because I think I was quite tired by this point, they end up in an airport and McQueen is running on live runways, being not run over, but having real aircraft pass over the over the top of him. And I was watching the whole thing thinking, how the fuck did you get permission to have live (laughs) aircraft taxiing about the runway while you're filming this stuff? Uh, excuse my language, but it was. I was taken brutally out of the movie by that point, thinking, How on earth did they do this? Is it worth watching? Yes. Is The Car Chase still one of the best ever committed to film? Absolutely. Is it a really good movie? For me, sort of. <laughs> Would I watch it again? Not for a long time. But without this movie, you don't have all of those brilliantly gritty, muscular 70s thrillers that then paved the way for the similar kind of muscular thriller to come back. Mm. And without the car chases, a bunch of the tech doesn't get invented and techniques for editing and approaching how these things are shot don't get produced. So for that, it's, it's essential viewing. If you haven't watched this in a while, go back and watch it. If you're feeling a bit bored by the plot, and I can understand why, one hour and five minutes, and you're golden.
0: One of the things I said when I reviewed Ronin was if you take the car chase out, car chases out, it's a kind of a pretty average kind of thriller. What would you say this would be like if you took that car chase out the middle?
1: I'm not sure I'd want to say average because I think there's something in the way that it shows... San Francisco as a city, mm. and in the way that they strip almost all the dialogue down to its bare minimum to get this really gritty, lo-fi thriller out of it. I think it would be an essential part of McQueen's canon, even without the car chase. So in that respect, I'd say it's not average, but it's equally not something that you would go back and re-watch very often. You'd watch it and go, I'm glad I saw that. It was interesting and it held my attention, but it's not something I wish to revisit very often. And I think that's the true with or without The Car Chase. The Car Chase is what elevates it to cinema classic, I Mm. think.
0: I read a um, synopsis of it. Well, a, a kind of a description of it more, I guess, which was that it is the kind of prototype of the modern police thriller, which I kind of get but it's not a genre that I know well or that I'm particularly into, so... It's the it's the independent cop, not quite going rogue,
1: but doing his own thing, doing some extra investigating on the side, mm. which sounds an awful lot like any number of 80s <laughs> cop movies and 90s cop movies, for that matter.
0: It's absolutely not a film for me. I think it's, it's not something that I would usually watch. I'm kind of in the same boat that I'm glad I watched it, but, you know, if I never see it again, I won't feel like it's the end of the world but the thing that i really really loved about the car chase and it's kind of built on in ronin which is it's not just closed roads there are obviously stunt cars in there they're obviously going fast because you can see people on the sidewalk you can see the other cars to give a sense of what real speed actually is and how fast they're going but there's also a sense of the imperfectness of it so the baddie screeches through a junction and zooms off up the hill. And if that had been in Gone in City Seconds, for example, then the car following would have immediately just followed them straight through a miraculous gap in the traffic. But, you know, Frank Bullock kind of turns and then has to stop and wait. And also, he's got unpower-assisted steering that a dozen turns lock to lock so you've basically got yes. this like sequence of, of um, I was going to say Lightning McQueen I've, I nearly said that so many times Steve McQueen just like frantically spinning the wheel back and now it's back the other way and turn it and... a lot of his shots in the in-car are him just you know, mm.
1: frantically steering <laughs> and uh, you feel like again with this made in with more modern technology you'd see a different angle mm. because the camera is effectively in the passenger seat side on to him, whereas you would now expect to see the kind of more rally driver or, or onboard three quarter angle where you can see out of the front of the windscreen as well as, and you can see what the steering wheel's doing and mm. you get more of a sense of the car's motion that way. But they were doing what they were going to do. This is 1968. Mm.
0: And these are big cinema cameras as well. These aren't...
1: And it's a mega achievement for the tech they had at the time. Mm. Um, And it's edited as well as it's put together. And yes, I've mocked the... best they had with the the stuff they had the kit they had there's an amusing anecdote apparently uh, a magazine uh, in a magazine article many years later one of the drivers involved in the chase sequence said that the charger which had a much bigger engine and much more horsepower was so much faster than mcqueen's mustang that they had to keep backing off to prevent the charger from getting away (laughs) and uh, we're looking at the movie If you had a choice between those two cars, if
0: someone said you can have one classic American muscle car, I'll give it to you, which one would you have? I'd have the Mustang. Because I would have the Charger. Oh, I'd have the Mustang. I think particularly that age of Mustang, where it's the single headlight. It's a smaller, prettier car, but if you want downright evil. See, what we've got here is, would you have Brian Supra or Dominic's thing with the... Blower through the hood. Isn't that a Charger? Is it a Lego one now as well? Yes, it is. And I
1: resisted the urge to buy it. (laughs) In that instance, I would have Brian's Supra because I am a child of the Gran Turismo era uh, who who grew up modifying Supras on Gran Turismo with a stage four turbo. Okay, I didn't put neons on it and I didn't overnight parts from Japan, but that's my generation of car, that Supra. And so, yes... I appreciate that the the charger with its funny wheelie bar, and f- for some reason, half the engine appears to stick out of the top of the bonnet. But anyway, we've we've digressed slightly. Speaking
0: of hugely fast cars,
1: <laughs> flawless segue where we went on a huge um, digression. There,
0: we are resurrecting now that we are out of lockdown and we're getting some fresh content. Thank God, like rain on the desert, we're going to resurrect what has Henry Catchpole been up to this week and. The if you're going to make a film to revigorate, revigorate, reinvigorate, reinvigorate the car lust of a nation, driving a Turbo S on track and road is a great way to do it. Especially when you've got car faction team doing the visuals. My God, I've missed car, new car videos. <laughs>
1: I haven't seen this one yet. I really want to watch it. I have not got around to it because I've been distracted by other things, as we will get to. Car Faction have been churning out a bunch of really good stuff during the lockdown, Mm. and I'm really pleased that they're back able to make films, and what a better place to start than 9-11 Turbo S.
0: Also, if you go into the Car Faction channel, they've been doing some good stuff during lockdown about kind of some of the the behind-the-scenes or the stories. The making of.
1: Yeah, Henry did a really interesting thing uh, on that that I probably should have put as one of my video clips <laughs> of the week but didn't. But yes, uh, if we remember, we'll stick that one in the show notes as well. Go back and look through some of their their more recent stuff they've done during the lockdown because it's worth seeing and very interesting if you've been a long-time viewer, which of course you have
0: because yes. it's Catchpole, right? And also, if you can tell us how his uh, Bianchi water bottle is magically stuck to the wall in his uh, recording cupboard, I would be fascinated to find out. Anyway, my video pick for this week is a Bugatti Veyron sort of. So on the uh, Tavarish channel, amongst rebuilding a McLaren 675LT and all the other fancy stuff that Freddy does, he bought a fake Bugatti Veyron. This is the most hilarious thing. <laughs> he bought it <laughs> for $4,500. Which is $4,000 more than I would have paid. <laughs> And somebody, God bless them, has built a replica Bugatti black and orange Grand Vitesse body kit onto a Honda Civic.
1: I question your use of the word replica there. Okay. That, that's that's maybe stretching the
0: so, definition of the word somewhat. If you rung somebody who had a big pile of fiberglass, described to them what a Bugatti Veyron looked like over the phone and then sent them a Honda Civic, this is what you would get. Yeah, that's a very fair description. Um, aside from the fact that it... Well, this won't be a spoiler alert, because the Bugatti variant doesn't have a spoiler. Well, it does. Um, One, it pisses fuel all over the uh, workshop and nearly catches fire, which, frankly, would have been a good fitting end for it. It also has wheel spacers, the likes of which you have never seen before or since.
1: Like half a foot of wheel <laughs> spacer. It's and and full credit to... To Freddie, he does point out what this does mm, to the steering yes. effort required, which which is something I don't think many channels cover. In when you're adding wheel spaces into this kind of <laughs> thing, what they do to the actual mechanics and physics of
0: turning the steering wheel. <laughs> it's it's worth a watch because, in all fairness, he do, actually does a pretty good job of describing what it actually is without just wanting to smash it with hammers. Um, and you, you do just watch it going, "Oh God, what's he going to find next?" Particularly, by the way. If you do watch it, one of my favourite angles is like the rear straight on view of this abomination. It's just, it looks like a kind of deformed, inflated spider. The rear is
1: terrible. The front, if you have very poor eyesight, and you squint <laughs> through <laughs> closed fingers, you might go, yeah, that might look like a Veyron. The rear is just it's not, made up crap.
0: It's it's awful. Awful.
1: Um, but yes, it's a very funny video, and I do look forward to seeing what Freddie's going to do with yes. it. Um, also, go and watch all of his other stuff, because he's been doing loads of stuff on his McLaren, kind of terrifying to see the state that the chassis is oh. in. And I, I'm going to be following it, fascinated to see how this gets rebuilt, because
0: it's a tough job. It is. I nearly picked... Actually, by the way, because I'm going to cheat and sneak, sneak another one in. There is a series on YouTube that has intersected with one of the films that we have reviewed previously. I think you reviewed it previously on this podcast. The trailer for which just went... Doo, do, do, chick, chicka, chicka. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Um So Josh oh. Gad, who younger people will know as the voice of Olaf from Frozen and who's been in all sorts of great stuff, is doing a series where he's reuniting the cast of 80s films via some enormous Zoom call. And he's done... What's he done? He's done Back to the Future. He's done uh, Princess 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 Bride. And he's done Ferris Bueller's Day Off with all of the cast. So if you have a great 80s nostalgia moment... Go and watch it, if only to see how old. I mean, uh, the guy who played Cameron, Alan Ruck, was not young when he filmed it.
1: He was thirty and yes. uh, thirty or thirty-one when he filmed it, playing a sixteen-year-old. <laughs> there's another clip out there which I probably won't remember to put in the show notes, but there is a little clip about how yellow they of the came to make that track. Ah. And uh, it's very short, no great insight, but it's kind of fun seeing the people behind that uh, iconic
0: track. Interesting. Your YouTube channel, sir. My YouTube channel is the Mercedes F1 channel, who oh, that's a good during the lockdown have actually been doing a lot of content. They were doing video interviews with like James Allison and Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas and all these people during lockdown since the factory's come back, they've been turning out a lot of content about how they are socially distancing, what they're doing to prepare for the races, what the logistics are like, what the on-track procedures are going to be like. It's quite kind of... I was going to say boring. Boring is the wrong word. It's a bit staid. It's not the most exciting popping video you've ever seen, but it's... They're giving away an awful lot of info. Mm. They're being very,
1: very open, which I really love about Mercedes. One of my favourite things about this channel is when they do the race debriefs, Mm. where they'll go through the whole race and they'll take questions from social media, which, of course, are filtered, so they're not going to go, why didn't you let Valtteri
0: stop before Lewis?
1: (laughs) Unless there's a really good reason. But they do tend to be very honest, and they have James Allison and a few of the other strategy people and people on the pit wall answering questions viewers' questions about how the race played out mm. and why they made the strategy calls they did. And they're usually pretty honest. Even when they've had a bad race, it's rather, especially when they've had a bad race, they will give justifications as to why they made the decisions they did. And they're more open, I think, than virtually any other of the top three teams. Mm. Ferrari don't do anything of note on social or... Any of the channels whatsoever, they're just or just like media waving arms and um, eating pasta, <laughs> and Red Bull are just too busy being
0: arrogant little c- sorry. Well, right, I'll cut that out. I I think, I think that should be an actual beep. That, <laughs> that should be an yes, actual yes, I'll beep. beep that. <laughs>
1: um, and kissing Christian Horner's ass to actually do anything worthwhile on the socials, which is weird because they have a whole media arm Ooh. that should be doing brilliant stuff, and yet they do. Fuck all. But watch the Mercedes stuff because, yes, it is a bit staid, and obviously some of the people who are in front of the camera are not not comfortable is the wrong word, but they're not used to mm. presenting in any, in a really engaging manner. They're engaging people, but they're out of their comfort zone in front of the camera, but they're doing it anyway, mm. and I really value that. Definitely. So, yeah, I've taken over your, your okay. YouTube okay. channel to, your, give, your, to give my what's endorsement. What's your pick for this episode? So I went down a rabbit hole here. I started out going – on from my WRC comment about wanting a drive to survive for WRC. So I went onto YouTube and did my classic WRC onboard, which led me to, of course, Colin McRae's onboard from 2001, Wales Rally GB, the best modern WRC onboard I think I've ever seen. If you've not seen the one, then come on now. Go and find it (laughs) out. Everyone else I know knows the one I mean. It is astonishing. I then... After watching that and going, oh, I miss Colin McRae so much. And then I found myself looking for who I consider to be the current generation's Colin McRae, which is Thierry Neuville in the Hyundai i20, because frankly, he's bonkers. And I found a video that was titled Thierry Nerville is always flat out. <laughs> Unfortunately, this video looked like it had been edited with a potato, so I had to find another one, which was Best of Thierry Nerville, which is basically a massive sequence of clips of him with his foot buried through the bulkhead and halfway through the floor, massively sideways, jumping the massivist. He's, he is always flat out. However... This then led me to just typing in WRC flat out and I came to a collection called Best of WRC Rally 2019 flat out, which has Nerville being flat out, but also all the other drivers and it is a stark demonstration of how far rally cars have come, how much speed they can carry. The current gen of cars are sideways, and I love that, because there was a moment when Sebastian Loeb ruined rallying forever by discovering that if you didn't go sideways, you went faster. And a whole generation of rally fans went, yeah, but it's really boring. And he went, (laughs) Gallic shrug, and just went off and won nine world titles on the bounce. Now, however, with the new generation of rally cars that have got a bit more power and a few less differentials and stuff sideways again, and you've got nutcases like uh, Thierry Neuville and Elfin Evans and a little bit of Sébastien Ogier, it's full of stuff like that. So it's just rally cars going absolutely batshit insane, massively sideways around corners it's brilliant. So that's my clip of the week. Makes you want rallying to come back. But unfortunately, thanks to coronavirus, I think more or less the entire 2020 season has been cancelled, which is a crying shame.
0: What's your channel
1: pick for... <laughs> my channel pick of the week. Now, this is a good one. You're going to like this okay. as, a, as a prior E46 M3 owner. Yep. I discovered these on a recommendation from a forum. So I'm going to give shouts out to Tim from North Loop. Thanks, Tim, who recommended a channel called Speed Academy no other description so i went and sort them out this looks like a pair of canadians in a, a, a beautifully big and airy workshop and they modify cars and upgrade them and make them better and there's a series i got sucked into which is the ultimate bmw m3 rebuild Ooh. where they have what they call a swamp car i think they must have got this m3 from somewhere in florida the brakes <laughs> are stuck on with rust they can't get the wheels off so they're whacking them with hammers people looking for mint condition 18 inch e46 m3 alloys look away right now because they take some dents out of them and they they're working on building a proper supercar chaser out of this e46 m3 and it's fascinating watching they've got some really choice kits stop tech brakes um jrz sorry i know that's not the correct British pronunciation, but it's what they say on the video. Coilovers. I forget what wheels they've got. Forge line wheels, I think. But they look absolutely. They've. There's clearly some budget behind this somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where the money comes from. Maybe the money comes from YouTube. But they're building a really mega car. And there's loads of other builds on there. There's another one there that's an Evo six build that is titled the STI Killer. Mm. There's just lots of really cool cars on their channel, and they they they. They're picking the right kind of components, the components that I would pick. They're picking the things that matter. I love channels like Beers for build where there's loads of fabrication going on with bodywork and stuff. I admire the ambition, even if I don't share the aesthetics. I admire the ambition, and I like watching it for that. But these guys are modifying cars the way I would do it. <laughs> and it's it's kind of wish fulfillment in that sense. So I really recommend you check them out. Speed Academy, have a look at the Ultimate M3 rebuild, and then have a look at the evo killer sorry the sti killer because that looks pretty cool too and reminds me of how much i
0: like the evo 6 excellent i'll definitely check out speed academy that sounds uh, sounds great you'll like it you'll be really jealous of the 46 m3
1: it's made me go oh maybe i could get one of those again <laughs> instead that'd be quite fun to have one of those again but that pretty much wraps up today's show so if you haven't seen bullet and you haven't seen American Graffiti, we reckon you should go and watch them. If you have seen them and you think that we've made idiotic statements and that we're both fools for talking about them in the way that we have, then please do get in touch on socials at Pod. If you fancy being nice, then please leave us a three at least star review. Maybe you could sneak to four on your podcast repository of choice because it does help get the word out share, like, and enjoy, all those kinds of things. And we will see you for the next podcast when hopefully there'll be a bit of F1 racing going on. We'll be closer to Le Mans starting. Mm-hmm. Formula E will have gone around a car park at least six times, <laughs> run out of batteries, need to change to a new double wound nine step
0: motor. And Marty will have taken a charger to San Francisco and gone down and then flat and then down and then flat and then down and then flat for a bit.
1: Oh, I'd love to do that. That would be great. I Genuinely, I would love to fly to San Fran hire a car and then go and do not full on bullet but just go and drive those roads because they're iconic although now actually thinking about it I want to go and watch The Rock again
0: (laughs) well that's your that's your job for the weekend then
1: (laughs) it's not strictly a movie we're going to review on the show but it's a good movie nonetheless so until next time we'll see you later until next time everyone